0: Janice probably did a much more fantastic job um, than I'm gonna do if you guys remember what she talked to. But the hematopoietic system um, consists of blood but also bone marrow which makes the cells that goes into the blood, the liver and the spleen which help remove those cells, and then the kidneys which make this thing called erythropoietin. Do You guys know what that is? We used to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we call it EPO because that's easier bone. easier to bone. say. Yeah. So it's bone it bone stimulates bone. your bone marrow to make more red blood cells. Mm. So so if someone's got kidney failure, sometimes they are anemic. Very very often they're anemic. They have low red blood cells, and sometimes we will give people injections of EPO to try to create that. Is that
1: usually pretty successful?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah it
0: is. Oh yeah. And let's talk, so the so the liver and the spleen, let's talk about it. so what the spleen does is the spleen what what does the spleen do? It filters
2: blood. It mm-hmm.
1: scavenges abnormal blood cells. hmm Yeah. It's How does a solid it do that?
0: Organ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Does it filter white blood cells? Red blood cells, platelets, all of them?
1: Abnormal blood cells.
0: And which ones are those? <laughs> <laughs> the
1: ones that aren't normal.
0: yeah generally red blood cells Um, white blood cells tend to kind of die on their own and then the lymphatic system tends to take those and kind of do away with them Um, red, spleen red Yeah, spleen is red if you look at it so that will maybe help you remember it Um, and then platelets just kind of like dissolve on their own in the bloodstream, they're much smaller Um, The liver helps make clotting factors. It makes most of the proteins that are in our bloodstream come from the liver, so that's kind of its main role, and then it removes toxins. It filters the blood for toxins. So think about the spleen as kind of a meshwork that things go through it, and then they get caught once they're abnormal enough. Um, And the liver is an even finer meshwork and a much more sophisticated organ. Okay, plasma. So if you took our blood, give a blood transfusion at the blood donation center, and then they spin it down. They put it in a centrifuge and start making it go like this. What happens is some of the blood cells will, will go to the side and then skim off to the top, and then they put it back in and spin it faster, and they do that three times, right? So when you go to donate blood, they take whole blood, but when we give blood to patients, we give it back as the components. We give them a red blood cell transfusion, or a platelet transfusion, or this thing that we call FFP, which is fresh, frozen plasma. So plasma is that if you spun out all of the cells from the blood, the stuff that's left over. So what it's made up of is, uh, there's obviously lots of water in it, but then there's electrolytes. Uh, So like sodium and potassium and stuff are just like floating around in it. There's dissolved gases. So when when air goes into our lungs, some of that oxygen and CO2 gets bound to hemoglobin on the red blood cells. But some of it also just is floating around in the plasma. Not a whole lot, but a little bit. And then there's glucose floating around in plasma. And then there's a whole lot of proteins. And those are clotting cascade proteins. So proteins that help you make clots, Um, and then proteins that help dismantle those clots if that process gets going too much. Uh, There's proteins that help the blood be not too basic or not too acidic, and then there's a whole bunch that help transport things. Generally, those are called hormones or steroids. I mean, it's a type of steroid, so all of those are in plasma. Red blood cells get made in the bone marrow They last about 120 days before they each die. How they die is that they get caught in this meshwork of the spleen, generally, and then sometimes they just kind of burst, and we call that hemolysis. The way that we measure your red blood cell count, so when they come to the ER and we get a blood test, you get what we call a CBC, which is a complete blood count, and it will have these two numbers, the hemoglobin and the hematocrit. So the hemoglobin is the absolute number of red blood cells that you have in your blood. The hematocrit is the percentage of red blood cells versus the entire kind of percent of the blood. And it's, it's not direct, so like a normal hemoglobin it's gender. There's a difference between genders too. I think males have a higher baseline hemoglobin, but um, it's generally above like 12 or 13 is a normal hemoglobin. Hematocrit normal would be like above 35, but it's not. It's not that like 35% of your blood is um, is red blood cells. It's the calculation, the math that they do for it is more complicated, and I don't know all the details, but but it's that's generally what it is. So if you took someone and you bled them out, let's say they had, you know, significant trauma, they're bleeding out whole blood, that percentage should still not be hugely affected, right? It should be, so let's say they're 35, uh, their hemoglobin is 10, and you bled them down to a hemoglobin of 9, their hematocrit, let's say, was 30, 30, and then it might be like 26. But let's say you took someone with a hemoglobin of 10 and you did a blood trans, you did dialysis, let's say, and you took away just the plasma. So you dehydrated them. Their hemoglobin will be the same, 10, but their hematocrit will actually go up because, they're- because if they're dehydrated, they're going to have a higher percentage of red blood cells per the overall blood volume. When people come into the ER, we we have certain numbers that we will absolutely transfuse someone for, and then we also look at symptoms. So if someone has a, a low red blood cell count and they're dizzy or they're short of breath or they're having chest pain, sometimes we'll give them a transfusion sort of just for that. But if anyone has a hemoglobin of seven or less or a hematocrit of 21 or less, we always, pretty much always give those people blood transfusions. Because that's sort of the number where you say, if you have fewer red blood cells than this, you aren't going to have enough blood cells to adequately carry oxygen to all of your organs.
1: So I know that there's been talk that at some point, uh, paramedics in the field may, start, may be able to start giving blood transfusion. Yeah. So then are we going to need to have the materials to test for those levels in the field, or are we going to have time to do that, or are we just going to go straight to the transfusion
0: Yeah. So right now, um, I think Albuquerque is giving blood. I think maybe LA is and Seattle has talked about it, but as far as I know, is not doing it yet. Um, What they are doing is giving whole blood and they have to have a special relationship with the blood bank that when they take blood from people, they're not spinning it down. They're just giving them the whole blood product. Whole blood um, so the, the one advantage of spinning down the blood products is that they last longer. So, and I I don't exactly remember how long, but like let's say you take a blood transfusion from someone and you store just RBCs, you can store that like up to a year or something like that. Whereas if it's whole blood, is I think
1: it's because
0: it's concentrated. Um, it's because it's concentrated, and I think it's because there's a whole bunch of proteins and stuff that sit in the blood that over time will break down. The red blood cells, or create clots, or things like that. Whereas if you spin out, right, they do exactly. But if you spin those out and you just have pure red blood cells and there's no proteins that break them down, they just sit there. And and if they're in a fridge, they preserve pretty well. So, uh, so if you give whole, if you get whole blood, I think it only lasts six weeks, something like that. So it means that this very valuable resource that we're taking from people. You know, it just, it's not, that's one reason why whole blood isn't as good of a product. But a lot of people are saying we should do that. Like, why are we dividing it up and then giving people back, you know? So, anyways, back to the systems that are using it. Generally, their protocols, they're not testing lab values. They're saying if someone is massively exsanguinating, so like, let's say a GI bleed where they're just pooping out blood, or a trauma where they're like bleeding out on the floor and they have certain other criteria. Those are usually hypotension or some other sign of shock or or that they have significant anemia. So let's say um, they have a GI bleed and they're having significant shortness of breath, something like that. And a lot of the times they've gotten to the hospital and then they get their blood uh, testing and they're actually not that low. Um, so then you say, okay, well, should we be doing this in the field? But the risk of one blood transfusion is not that high, so in general it's thought to be pretty safe. And then sometimes if someone's like actively just like bleeding out, you might get their hemoglobin and it's nine, but they're actually lower than that. It's like the blood test hasn't caught up with kind of how low they are at that moment yet.
1: Sean. So um, whole blood lasting only six weeks and with all these isolation procedures going on, is there mm-hmm. some kind of um, prediction of-
0: Yeah, um, I might have, six weeks might not be exactly right. It's something like that. But um, uh, I haven't heard anything about that with all the COVID stuff going on. We And then the other thing is when we take blood, it lasts for a really long time. So they probably have a big stock and we don't use whole blood very often at all. But I haven't heard that they have a big shortage. That sounds like a great
2: research. Yeah. I mean, occasionally,
0: occasionally occasionally we do get really low. Like, you guys probably hear this. They message it to the community when they're like, the blood, blood Bank Northwest is getting low. Like, please go donate blood. Like, have you guys ever heard that on the TV or the radio? Right, so they message it when they're getting low.
2: If you're in their email system, they blow you up all the time with, mm-hmm. like, yo, it's your due. Like, we're mm-hmm. low. Like, come on in. And, mm-hmm. and then when you get in there, depending on what type of whole blood you want to give... Positive, B positive, A, positive, no negative. Then they're like, Oh yeah, we have got a lot of you. Or mm-hmm. and then they'll tell you like, Oh, you're you're not a hot commodity. Or they're like, Oh, come here. Like, yeah. 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 I back next week. Here. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of which. I'm because I'm AB
3: positive, and apparently yeah. AB positive plasma is like the universal plasma donor. Mm-hmm. And they're like constantly calling me.
0: hmm Yeah. Exactly. That was what I was going to talk about next. So, do you guys all know what your blood types, your types are? No. If you donate blood, they'll tell you. So it's kind of interesting. What are you guys? A positive? A positive? You're A positive too? Well, you're AB positive? You guys know? B
4: positive. A negative. Oh. Ah.
0: You and me. Uh, really? Yeah. So, so what that is is that you've got little... Proteins that sit on the surface of the red blood cells and that helps your body to recognize what's you and what's foreign And so if you have a type A person and you give them type B blood The body is going to attack that type B blood. It's got anti B antibodies, essentially, and and then that is going to create this huge inflammatory effect on the body, and then they're going to become hypo—it's essentially like you have severe anaphylaxis, and that person's going to become hypotensive and quite sick.
1: So that could be the issues of us transfusing blood with
0: field, too, then, right? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. So, yeah. so So there's type— So there's the A, so you've got a red blood cell, there's A proteins, and there's B proteins, or someone can have both, right? So like me and Dan only have A, and you have both. Um, And then there's type O, which is that someone doesn't have any of the proteins. These proteins don't do anything. They just help the body to recognize uh, it's sort of like a genetic uh, signature or something like that of this is me. there's also this thing called RH factor. So it's just another protein that sits on the blood cells or it doesn't. And do you guys know why we care about RH? No. Yes, exactly. So so if you give someone if someone has AB or A blood and you give them B blood, that's really significant. Like they are going to get super sick. If someone has RH positive blood and you give them, or let's say they have RH negative blood and you give them RH positive blood, they don't get quite as sick. They don't get that massive inflammatory response. But what happens is that the body recognizes that RH factor as a foreign protein and it starts making antibodies against it. And then that's never going to make a big deal unless that person has a blood transfusion in the past, sorry, in the future, in which case they might have more of a response. Or they are a young female of childbearing age that then gets pregnant. And let's say that baby, so let's say mom was RH negative and dad was RH positive, right? You make the baby, the baby has like a 50-50 chance of having RH positive or negative blood. But if it's an RH positive infant or fetus, the body will have antibodies against that and attack the fetus and that mom is likely to have a miscarriage. So it makes it more difficult for that person to get pregnant. So when we give blood transfusions, if someone comes into the ER and they're not dying in front of us, we get, we try to match them. We try to figure out what their blood type is and give them the exact blood that would fit their blood type, but if they're dying or if they're in the field and you're giving um, whole blood there's a universal donor do you guys know what that is o positive o, posi- o positive and o negative exactly so o negative would be the total universal donor because you could give that blood to even young females of childbearing age but if but if it's o positive so positive means rh positive you could you would not want to give that to young females of childbearing age so that so o positive blood could go to older women or to any male. So in general, um, so we carry, so up at the medevac service in Alaska, we carry blood. Um, It it costs us more to get O negative than O positive. So we carry both. We carry a unit of both. And if that person is a male, we say give them the O positive preferentially and if it's and then otherwise, you know, female, we just give them O negative. And the idea there is
2: if you're giving somebody Mm-hmm. then making them because the body develop Yes,
0: possibly? exactly. You're not going to make them positive in the sense that they're going to develop the RH factor on their red blood cells, but they're going to have antibodies. Right. Is it one
2: yeah. of
4: those things where we have a, short, is a short-lived thing where those antibodies are going to die out after we
0: have a Stay forever. In general, if you make antibodies, they stay forever. Sort of oh. like when we get, if we got chickenpox when we were kids, theoretically you should be immune to chickenpox forever. That said, that immunity does wane. Just as we all get older, our body is not as good at making proteins. So if you got exposed to chickenpox when you're much older, you might be at risk for getting it again. That's why we, sometimes you'll get boosters, like um, like older people get a pneumovax vaccine. That's a booster of those antibodies to try to re-stimulate that response. Zach. So-
2: O positive would be for all males and females that are outside of childbearing age. Yes. And then you said we keep antibodies for life, and I don't mean to take it on a like a current events thing, but why would they say then that there's like they're concerned about? Are they concerned about the strength of the antibody or the? Ability of the antibody to fight the, the COVID or I guess there's a lot of antibody talk. Going sure.
0: On. Yep. Yeah. So a couple of, ta- a couple of um, questions with the current coronavirus stuff is, so one is if you've had coronavirus and you develop antibodies and then you're around someone that has coronavirus, you theoretically still could, okay, so...
4: Mm-hmm. you still get sick again well
0: you don 't get sick so let 's say you 've had chicken pox, but then you 're around someone with chicken pox that 's not a great example well whatever so let 's say you have the chicken you have the chicken pox virus floating around in your bloodstream if you 've never had chicken pox before, you get sick and it takes your body about three days to develop those full the full army of antibodies whereas if you already have those antibodies around so so let's say the full army—I'm totally making this up—but let's say it's 3,000. If once you are you have gotten better from that illness, let's say you just have a hundred of those antibodies floating around. You don't you don't need 3,000. But when you are exposed to chickenpox again, those antibodies go bind to the chickenpox and say, and they signal. They say, "Hey, body, there's chickenpox here. We need to make an army," and they can make. It it triggers this response that can make the 3,000 antibody army really fast, like within 24 hours.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Usually within 24 hours, yeah. So you probably won't even get sick if you were exposed to chickenpox again because you make those antibodies so fast that you shut it down. But you still theoretically could kind of transiently carry that virus, and then the question is are you? able to transmit that to other people, uh, to be contagious, right? You're but, sleeping, even you're not sick. yes. And, but the way, then we go back to like, how do we actually shed virus, right? So for respiratory illnesses, generally it's, it's droplet, we say droplet precautions, right? That you, you cough and that someone else inhales that and that's how they get sick. If you're not getting sick, then theoretically you shouldn't be coughing and you shouldn't be transmitting it. So one big thing with coronavirus is, let's say you've had it, you have the antibodies, can you still transmit it to other people? And the thought right now, at least from what I've read thus far, is that no, you can't because you're not getting sick and you're not transmitting it, able to transmit it in the ways that we know that people are transmitting it, theoretically. The other question is, if you've had it, do those antibodies keep you immune for life. And pro- I think everyone kind of agrees if you had coronavirus in March, you're probably going to have at least 3 to 6 months where for sure you're going to be immune, right? Because because the body's going to be strong, but any like any virus antibodies wane a bit over time. But generally over time is like years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Um, so I think that's just part of the question is like how long does that immunity last? And we wouldn't care that much if we were talking about chickenpox because chickenpox doesn't kill that many people, but coronavirus is so, such a high mortality that that's why we're saying, well, exactly how long does it give you immunity? Because if, it don't, let's say it only gives you like 10 years of really good immunity, then maybe once we develop this vaccine, we should be revaccinating people at 10 years or 20 years or something like that. Okay. Mm, I think Paul and then Dan. Um, could you just
3: briefly talk about Yes?
2: Mm -hmm.
3: So
0: so on any given cell, like here's kind of a red blood cell, it's gonna have a protein that, I don't know, it could look like whatever, let's say it looks like that. Antibodies generally have the shape of a Y, and then this is gonna come across and bind on a receptor. So the antigen is that, and this would be the antibody. Antigen is a word that just means something that can be bound. And that could be a cell that has like a protein that's a normal thing for us, or it could be a foreign thing. Like let's say a bacteria gets into our bloodstream. That bacteria could be an antigen that then we're going to send things to bind it. that answer, sort of. Yeah, yeah it does. Okay, damn.
2: Uh,
4: with the coronavirus, mm. it's an RNA virus, correct? Yep. That has mutations. Would that affect immunity? If you because you know with like with the flu vaccine, you know mm-hmm. uh, influenza, we get the mm-hmm. shot, but that doesn't mean we won't get it because we don't know what strain is going to be. We best guess. Is mm-hmm. that you think that'll be similar with this when we finally get a vaccine?
0: Yes. Um, One thing that has been circulating is that RNA viruses apparently tend to become less virulent over time. Virulent means how strong it is, right? Because if if an RNA virus is so virulent that it kills its host, it's not going to get transmitted because that person is dead. So it wants to be subtle enough that it can get them sick, have time to replicate and infect other people. Um, so so like that's,
1: evolutionary pressure is for it to
0: become less Yes. Prevalent. Yes. So, so who knows what's going to happen, right? But like something that people smarter than me have said is, well, statistically, this thing will probably become maybe more prevalent, but less deadly over
4: time. But it could be similar to the flu, where this, absolutely even with this vaccine, it's right? Not be like, oh, everybody's been vaccinated; it's not going to be here anymore.
0: Right. It's not like it's polio, things. where once you've had, like, we can eradicate polio because it really isn't mutating. Like, I think coronavirus could absolutely mutate, and and yeah, and might be like the flu, where we have to make a new vaccine every year or two or whatever. Yeah. John.
3: Just because I'm type A B blood. Mm-hmm. So I have receptors mm. on my blood cells. Yes. But I don't have the antibodies. Yes. Because I'm just some somewhere. I'm not understanding the
0: importance of, yep. of that. So you've got your red blood cell. Let's say you're Emily and you've got A sticking up there, but let's and then I've got B antibodies, right? in my blood so if I give if you gave me a type B blood transfusion those would bind to the B can you see Sean sort of nope better yeah Uh, uh, the the B so if you gave me type B blood those would go bind to those blood cells and create a problem but if you're Paul you have type A and type B uh, proteins on your red blood cell, and then you don't have that. Because if you did, you would attack your own red blood cells. So if we take your blood and we spin it down and we take out all the cells and all we have left is the plasma, your plasma does not have A or B antibodies. So that's why you are the universal plasma donor, because if we give your plasma to someone that um, has AB blood... It doesn't matter, or sorry, we can give you give your plasma to someone that has AB blood because you're not going to fight it. But then, let's say we give your plasma to someone that's type A or type B or type O. It doesn't matter because either way, you don't have antibodies that are going to fight whatever they have. Does that make sense? So it's really important that someone has type that type AB blood gets type AB plasma. Yeah, I'm saying that right. But if they but if they have anything else, it's not as important. But we can give your plasma to them.
1: And, uh, are the anti antibodies that instance, are, are they just there like the antibodies we were just discussing? Like there's a, a little bit of them, and then when the infusion hits, then they mm-hmm. they call in the army? Yes. Have a little bit of a delayed uh, response, and, and then the yeah. yeah,
0: probably. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oh yeah, okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about hemoglobin and how it binds oxygen. So So red blood cells have four heme molecules on it, and those change shape as oxygen binds to between one and four of them. So if a hemoglobin has zero oxygens bound to its four binding receptors, it really wants oxygen. It's gonna have a really strong binding affinity for oxygen. But let's say it's got three out of the four docks full, it's not gonna bind quite as strongly to that fourth one. But there's a few things that affect how well oxygen binds to hemoglobin. So some of those things are pH. If someone is really acidotic, they're not gonna bind oxygen as well. So that might be a reason why, let's say you have someone that has really severe DKA, Or they're really sick. They've had sepsis for a few days. They might not. They might be hypoxic because they're not binding oxygen quite as well. Um, The higher the temperature. So if someone has a really high fever, they're not going to bind oxygen quite as well. And yeah. So then, if you have a lot of CO2 coming from your tissues. So for instance, CO2 is kind of a byproduct of metabolic metabolism. Sorry, of metabolism. so if you have if you sepsis and your body's really sick and kind of working hard to try to make itself better, um, you're gonna produce a lot of CO2, and that helps uh, hemoglobin release the oxygen, theoretically, to get it to your cells. Yeah, carbon dioxide. If I, sorry if I said the wrong thing. said so, ca-
3: the thing, I was wrong. Oh, okay.
0: So the way that it does this, I don't, this is from, this is a little bit from your book, so I don't know if you need to know this for tests and stuff for National Registry, but the way that hemoglobin changes its affinity for oxygen is through this protein, 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate. So apparently if it increases the amount of that, it decreases the affinity for which oxygen will bind to the hemoglobin. Carbon monoxide, so here we go, CO has... 210 to 250 times affinity, so way more affinity for binding hemoglobin than oxygen does. So that's why if someone has CO poisoning, uh, their oxygen level might actually kind of look normal, but they're not actually getting that oxygen onto their hemoglobin because it's bound up by all the CO molecules. Sean? Do
1: you know if that affinity is impacted by temperature?
0: For CO? Probably. I mean, it's probably, well, that's a really, I don't know. Mm. I,
1: can, I mean, I can see, you know, you're in a fire, a lot mm-hmm. of CO is being produced from that. Mm-hmm. Oxygen is releasing from the hemoglobin due mm-hmm. to the increase in temperature and more CO.
0: Yeah. That said, the, the effect of temperature is not that big. And also like the, the range of temperatures that our bodies can be, again, not that big, right? Once your body's above, you know, about 104 or below like 92 degrees Fahrenheit, that's when like things really stop working that well. So if someone is really in a fire and they're hot because of that, um, at a certain point, you're just gonna be dead. Like, so, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> mm. With
4: the carbon monoxide and the treatment for that, how does, with that strong affinity, how does pressure um, knock the carbon monoxide off the hemoglobin, or am I thinking about that incorrectly? Like, you know, like putting somebody in a chamber or like how we would treat yeah. in preparation for that if somebody has severe CO poisoning?
0: Yeah. Or, or
4: like, how would, how would we, because it binds so strongly to it, and we're trying to knock that off of the hemoglobin,
0: right? Yeah, you're making making me sure. think hard.
3: Sometimes um, like, they just do like a blood transfusion because it's carbon monoxide binds so strongly that like you could try the barometric chamber,
2: or hmm. bar. yeah, Are we knocking yeah. off yeah. the hemoglobin, yeah. or are we just But they said there's only the one yesterday, right, at the regeneration? New ones are being
0: yeah. So if someone has carbon monoxide poisoning, you generally give them car- uh carboxy carboxyhemoglobin? Carboxy- no, I'm not saying that right. Let's Cy- see. Cyanide. No, saying is for oh yeah, hydroxycobalamin, yeah. hydroxy-cobalamin. sorry, yeah. which is the cyan. Okay. Wait, but we're not I'm confusing that the with cyanide. Is... For cyanide. cyanide. Yeah. Um We give them oxygen, sorry, duh. We put them on 100% oxygen and what you're doing is that, so let's say you've got um, a hemoglobin molecule. Um, So you've got its four receptors and you've got tons of oxygen floating around. And then you only have a little bit of CO say so more oxygen, right? So if you make it such there is way more oxygen than there are CO molecules, it's just going to be more likely that the, that the hemoglobin gets bound with oxygen than with CO. So that's, that's why we give 100% oxygen. We just kind of want to storm them with oxygen. And over time, the CO will kind of release and take more oxygen. And the CO will get digested. Um, but by the time, so the reason that we send someone to a hyperbaric chamber is that the research shows that it decreases the amount of neurologic sequelae down the road. Delayed neurologic sequelae. What does that mean? I don't know. It means that that people, after they've had CO poisoning, might have some sort of long-term effect, which could be they have long-term paresthesias. They have sort of like a traumatic brain injury type picture where they're a little bit altered. Uh, or maybe their memory's not quite as sharp or maybe they've lost the ability to smell or i think it could be anything and i don't think we have like a great understanding of like okay if a then b um, but they found that people tend to do better long term if you take them to the hyperbaric chamber but you have to sort of prove that they had really severe carbon monoxide poisoning and we have a list of criteria so those criteria are a certain number of of CO. So if you measure your blood quantity of CO, if it's over 25 or if it's over 20 in a pregnant female, that's one of them. If they passed out during their episode where they're getting CO poisoning, if they already have neurologic symptoms, and might be one more, something like that. But we have this list of criteria that if they have any of those, that's when you talk to Virginia Mason and say, would they be a candidate for the dive chamber? How does it work? Um, So if you raise the atmospheric pressure, I don't exactly know, but I would kind of guess that maybe that higher atmospheric pressure is maybe useful in helping to unbind CO or to help Oxygen bind? I'm not, actually, that doesn't make any sense. Higher higher atmospheric pressure would not help oxygen bind more, but it might help the CO release. I'm not totally sure. It's a good question.
4: So, it, for us, when we're given high flow to, you're not necessarily getting rid of the CO off the hemoglobin, you're just trying to inundate the rest of them that aren't filled with CO with oxygen.
0: Well, it does help get some CO off of it, because even though it has, you know, a 200 time binding ability, if you have. Tons of oxygens just saying like, hey, get like, take me, take me. Like some of that CO will bind, will unbind, and oxygen will bind.
1: So the affinity part, part of that definition is how long it stays attached.
0: To no, think of affinity as sort of like a magnet. It's like how strong that magnet is going to attract it. Um, but once it's on there, the the strength of the magnet doesn't really affect the time. Um, just the body, everything, I know, it's sorry, really confusing to to explain. Um, Everything in the body is kind of a balance, right? Like our body is always clotting and declotting. It's always becoming more and less acidic and basic, right? There's kind of a lot of, the body's always kind of in this little back and forth motion. So even though something binds to hemoglobin, it's probably always kind of like Binding for a while and then releasing, and then binding and then releasing, and it can, like, even though it has a greater affinity, like it will unbind. It's not like it gets on there and is just stuck forever. I don't. I've never heard of Janice's thing that they do blood transfusions. It's totally possible, but I've seen a number of CO patients and it's never come up as a thing saying you should give them a blood transfusion. I've never heard of that. I think just. I think Talking out loud, I think a reason why you wouldn't want to give someone a blood transfusion is that they still have CO floating around in their plasma. So if you give them new blood cells, that CO is just going to bind the new blood cells. And every time you do give a transfusion, you do the risk isn't that great, but you always put them at risk for a transfusion reaction. So you have to ask, is the risk of the transfusion higher than the risk of what they already are at? Dan.
4: Uh If you didn't do anything, what's mm-hmm. the, not the half life, but how long would you, like, how long would it take for the body to process that CO and get rid of it? So?
0: so when someone comes in, we'll put them on six hours of 100% O2. So let's say they don't meet one of those criteria to go to Virginia Mason. Generally, we keep them in the ER, give them six hours, send them home. Non rebreather, CPAP, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Non rebreather. And mm-hmm.
3: every 120 days, all your blood is getting remade, right? So. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I mean, but you've by 60 days, you should have 50% of your blood be new, right? So it, happen, it will happen even faster than that, but yeah. Sorry, that's confusing. Yeah, okay. So this is called the, uh, the no, this is not the Starling curve. So this is the oxygen dissociation curve. So... Have you guys heard of this, right shifting and left shifting? Have you ever seen this thing or heard this thing? Um, The principle of this is important to know. So the red line is, so you've got the partial pressure of oxygen. So one way to think of that is how much oxygen is in the blood. You know, it's not exactly this, but if you have a ton of oxygen, you're going to, you're going to put more pressure on the hemoglobin to bind it up. Um, And then this is how, what percentage of the hemoglobin gets bound up? So, and, and then another way to look at this is your SAT. So, if you have a lot of oxygen in your bloodstream, less of the hemoglobin, so there's this curve right here where it's really steep, and the oxygen the hemoglobin has a really high affinity to bind the oxygen. But once you get to higher oxygen levels and the hemoglobin mostly already be being bound up with oxygen, it's going to have a lower affinity. So we can shift that through a couple of different things. So this curve is steeper, and it's more likely to bind up oxygen at, le- at less oxygen in the bloodstream if you have decreased temperature, decreased Uh, So, decreased, uh, that's the molecule that helps uh, hemoglobin bind oxygen, CO, and acid. And then, so, like, a way to think about that is that if you have any of those things going on, so you're acidotic, you're hypothermic, you've got carbon monoxide poisoning, hemoglobin's not going to bind oxygen quite as well. But if you've got increased temperature... Or sorry, I'm messing this up. If you're acidotic, those things will make it more likely to bind it. Sorry, I'm totally messing that up. But essentially these things, so temperature, carbon monoxide, and then the body adjusting the amount of this protein in the hemoglobin will make that hemoglobin more or less likely to bind oxygen. The main take-home is just that, that if someone has a fever or if they're sick, you know, they're acidotic, um, those things will make it make them potentially hypoxic. Right.
3: That would show up with their just being
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Do uh, you guys need a break? You can take a break. Have to? Yeah. Okay. Five minutes. Mm-hmm.
2: Um I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, especially when I saw your your red and your blue, I keep thinking about you know blue bloater, pink puffer. Mm-hmm. Hypoxic drive. Are they altering the shapes of their red blood cells, or the hemoglobin protein abilities. Why do they go to the hypoxic drive and become retainers? Are they doing something to their hemoglobin or sure. their red blood
0: cells? No, okay. they are. So they're not. They're not. There's no change in the hemoglobin. Um, <clears throat> it's it's the normal hemoglobin change. So let's say you have advanced COPD. And what we try to, try to titrate people's SATs to is 88 to 92% in COPD years, right? 92% for everybody else. And that's because those people are kind of always a little bit hypoxic. So their oxygen, their hemoglobin is always going to have a slightly higher binding affinity for oxygen, but it's not higher than if you took any of us and put our oxygen level at 88%. But, there, but it is, it's higher for all of us at 88% than it is at 95%. Okay, But the hypoxic drive has to do more with the amount of retained CO2. right? So if I <clears throat> get a blood gas from someone in the ER, I get a certain number of numbers from that. I get the pH of the blood, the percentage of CO2 in the blood, the percentage of oxygen, and the bicarbonate, and I can interpret that. So when I get a blood gas, so you guys get end CO2, right? Yeah. That's your kind of equivalent of our blood gas. When So a normal end CO2 would be 35 to 45 percent. Same thing for when I get a blood glass in the ER, except the blood is a little bit more precise. Um, a copd probably always lives either at the higher end of that range or maybe at like 45 to 55%, something like that. So CO2 causes, let me think about this, vasodilation, I think, of blood vessels. And that somehow, hand-waving, um, essentially makes it so that you always are kind of trying to absorb a little bit more oxygen. I have that right. So it's going, and there's central effects, so there's little receptors in your brain that sense how much CO2 you have and say if your CO2 is going up too high it triggers you to breathe faster and deeper. That's how it does it. Yeah. Okay. So
2: that your cells sense? will always be more, a little more hungry for the oxygen rather than they're uh, inspired to get rid of their wastage, their CO2. They end up retaining
0: the hemoglobin will be more hungry for the oxygen, and the brain is triggering you to breathe more, which if you, if you take deeper breaths and you breathe faster, you're getting more oxygen, but you're also releasing more CO2. So, yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, can
4: you talk about the, our target sats that we have in our protocol now, because mm-hmm. they seem to be, I think they're a little lower in this set of protocols, and ACLS talks about like 94%. And Mm. our protocols in summary looks like 92
0: to 95. Mm. I mean, you guys are studying ACLS right now, so you'd know better than I would. Um, But I don't know where that's coming from, 94%. Um, I would say most of the literature, so we used to kind of say keep people's sats high, like 95% and above. Um, But there's been some studies that have come out over the last 10, 15 years that show that oxygen it can be harmful, that it can create free radicals. So they've done a bunch, there's, there's a great trial called the AVOID trial where they took patients just with STEMIs and and um, ACS, STEMIs and NSTEMIs, and then they took, uh, there's been some other critical care trials where they take just people that are really sick, and in all these trials they've randomized them to a high versus a low oxygen strategy. So trying to keep their SATs at above 95% versus keeping their SATs at 92 to 95%. And pretty much across the board in these studies, the low oxygen strategy patients do better. So I don't know where, where the number 94 is coming from, but I would say this is, so anything that gets published takes about five years to get to the American Heart Association recommendations. So it could just be that they're a little bit older and then the way that the American Heart Association tends to work is that they give levels of evidence. So they say this is grade A evidence, grade, you know, sort of like we thou shalt do this would be grade A. Grade B would be it's probably a good idea if you do this. Grade C would be like it's optional, do it if you want. And then grade D is like we don't have enough evidence, we're not going to make an opinion on this. So I think my guess would be, like let's say they take some of this new literature, they're going to say, yeah, we have some evidence showing that high oxygen might be harmful, you should probably consider doing, but they're not going to be like thou shalt. Um, So that's my guess of why they are saying 94%. Um, Yeah, but the protocols I don't think are different from the old ones, but Know, maybe they are. I don't know. They were a little bit lower, yeah. Well, we're saying titrate only to 92. I think the other, the old ones might have said titrate above 92, but now we're saying titrate above 92, but not higher than 95. Yeah. Okay. So white blood cells. <clears throat> There's a whole bunch of different types of them. Um, here they are, and they all do different things. So, like for instance, macrophages come and, so let's say there's like a bacteria floating in the bloodstream, they cu- they're big goobly gobs and they come and like envelop the bacteria and then they eat it and digest it. So that's how those work. Um, eosinophils are, have to do with allergic response. And like you've probably heard of like histamine response, right? So eosinophils get activated by that sort of pathway of, of allergies and then release, stimulate tons of release of histamine basophils do something somewhat similar. Neutrophils are kind of our primary, like, let's fight um, bacterial, bacterial infections. Um, so let's see. So yeah, basophils store histamine. Eosinophils are yeah, part of the allergic response and fight parasites. Neutrophils also help un- engulf microorganisms lymphocytes, so it's, we only have the small lymphocyte up there, but those, there's two types of them. There's T cells and B cells. So uh, B cells produce antibodies. So we talked about that if you have 10 antibodies of something and one gets activated, it's going to stimulate this B cell response to generate a ton of those antibodies, and then that's how you build your army. T-cells are cells that are floating around that have certain proteins and kind of recognize foreign viruses. So I don't know, I don't think you guys need to know the details of all of this unless national registry questions are asking you about it, but I would say it's important to know that there's lots of different types of white blood cells and they're sort of categorized into things that fight viruses versus fight bacteria. Demargination. So when we make white blood cells, they kind of hang out and just cling to the side of our red blood cells. And they're not activated. They're just kind of sitting there waiting for you to tell them that you need them. And they also sit in the lymph system and then you can really quickly sort of generate white blood cells and then get them moved into the bloodstream from there. But those white blood cells that are sitting on the sides of veins can come into the bloodstream and get activated by any sort of stress on the body. So that might be an infection. But another classic thing would be a seizure. Um, and steroids will do it. And then, yeah, sometimes just exercise or stress. So, like, I saw a kiddo um, yesterday, the day before, or whatever, that had a white cell count of 18. And we, just, we were looking all over for infection. We tested her urine, got a chest x-ray, like couldn't find pneumonia or anything, but she had had a seizure that morning, and so we ended up saying, well, her white blood cell count was probably 18 because, just because of the seizure. Normal white blood cell count is between 4 and 12.
3: So if someone's under like, severe stress, your mm-hmm. white blood cell count would, or could it potentially be high.
0: Could, be, could potentially be. Yeah, Ten, the the inflammatory response, the demargination, tends to be more robust in young healthy people. So, like, you know, an eighteen year old that has a white count of eighteen, I think that would be potentially due to stress. If they're like sixty five and they've got that, I would say uh, there's might be something else going on. hm
2: mm. uh, Yeah. Sure like, Exercise induced anaphylaxis or something mm. like that would be white cells like overproducing kind of exercise stress or.
0: I don't think it would be I think it would I don't think it'd be demargination I'd be I think it'd be something about the exercise stimulating eosinophils probably to like reduce release histamine. I've seen people when they exercise they get really red or like exercise induced hives. Yeah, I don't I don't never heard of someone like going into like anaphylaxis from like hypotensive from exercise. Yeah. Yeah. I think that sounds just like an excuse for not working out, I but <laughs> no more out no more out Yeah
1: out. All right.
0: Um, immunosuppression. So <clears mouth> some people are immunosuppressed just genetically. They have autoimmune diseases. What that usually is is your body, for whatever reason, is seeing itself as foreign and attacking it. So some examples of that would be lupus uh, rheumatoid arthritis, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Uh, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of them. There's a whole bunch of autoimmune diseases. Like someone can have autoimmune liver failure. And for whatever reason, the body sees some specific protein in the liver and they have liver failure or autoimmune, um, lung, like pulmonary, uh, failure. So there's a a bunch of kind of weird ones. How rapidly Um,
1: does that progress for the
0: years usually usually autoimmune diseases present in people's 20s and it's it had usually been going on for 10 years or so kids so this is like the germ theory of kids. So when you're a really small infant, like six, month, six months or less, or a year or less, you don't really have antibodies. And that's why breastfeeding is encouraged so much is because the mom actually gives her antibodies to the baby in the breast milk. So that's why they say breastfeed for six to 12 months. Um, but then after that, the kid has to develop their own antibodies, right? So as that's why kids get sick all the time is because We have those antibodies, but the kids don't. So they get sick, they develop the antibodies. And then it's germ theory that if you prevent your kid from getting sick, say, don't touch anything, you know, that they're not going to get those sicknesses and develop those antibodies. And theoretically, they're they're more fragile, I guess, when they're older. That's the theory. Um, But... Uh, you don't tend to have quite as robust of an immune response until you're a little bit older, like teenagers and 20s and then onward. So I think that's probably the reason why the the autoimmune process might have been going on for a while, but you're still building up your antibodies, and then finally it starts injuring the body. So, is there another question?
3: No. I did, but I was going to ask cuz I don't know it, but I
0: just it. <clears throat> Cool. you're gonna like research a topic and (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) yeah yeah so other yeah hey Wikipedia can be great I I look at Wikipedia all the time but something I'll kind of do is if it Wikipedia gives references right so it'll say we say this because of this and if you go down to the bottom you can just really quickly like breeze through those articles and say do those sound legit and usually it is so Hmm. anyways okay Uh, So there's autoimmune diseases, um, organ transplant patients. So if someone has an organ transplant, their body is sort of by definition going to see that foreign organ, that organ is foreign. So they try to match transplant patients as close as they can with the different proteins that are on their organs, but you're never going to get it 100% right. So you have to immunosuppress that person so that they don't attack that organ and go into rejection. Yeah, yeah, because we have a ton of pro- just different proteins. Um, and it's, I, I don't even know all the things that they cross-match for. But that's why if you have a family member, that, and like the closer the family member, it, you tend to have more of the same proteins. So, yeah.
2: and, and you're talking about to, to not reject, you're taking like anti-rejection or immunosuppression? Like mm-hmm.
0: Yep, yep. so the, the most common medication that organ transplant patients are on is called tacrolimus. But if you see someone on that medicine, see, these are all the things, like you guys aren't gonna remember this, right? And just to make it more complicated, we have generic names and brand names for all of the medicines, right? Um, <laughs> but there are certain, you know, as you guys are paramedics for longer and longer, it's really useful to learn a lot of these medications, even though we don't carry them to say, huh, you're on tacrolimus, and, the, and you say, oh, have you had any medical problems? And they say, no. And then you look at their belly, and they've got a huge scar right there. And you say, oh, have you had a liver transplant? Oh, yeah, like 14 years ago. And you're like, oh, that's, that's a medical problem. That's a you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Right. Yes, so. <laughs> yeah, so tacrolimus is an anti-rejection drug. Um, HIV obviously makes you immunosuppressed because HIV is a virus that attacks your T cells so that you can't fight off uh, viral infections and bacterial infections quite as well. Blood cancers, so if you have leukemia or lymphoma, you, your bone marrow is making so many white blood cells that on one sense, it kind of overwhelms the white blood cells. Like, It's, just, like it's sort of like this, where you have like so much you know, oxygen that the, that the normal white blood cells can't function as well. But then also in blood cancers, those white blood cells that you're, you're making aren't normal functional white blood cells. They're mute, mutant white blood cells. So that will um, functionally make you immunosuppressed. Um, and then anyone who has cancer is often on chemotherapy, and that makes you immunosuppressed because it tends to be toxic to the bone marrow itself, and you don't make as many white blood cells. Um, radiation does not make you uh, immunosuppressed. Just FIF someone's only on radiation therapy. Platelets. Uh, They survive 7 to 10 days. They're removed Oops, by the spleen. I don't remember what I said before, but they're removed by the spleen. And uh, so when you cut something, you cut your skin, little inflammatory molecules are released there that then trigger the platelets to get activated and to come and bind to that spot. And there's this whole whole cascade, which I think I'll show you in a second. Oh, here we go. So you cut I know what that is you cut your red blood cell. it releases inflammatory molecules. Um, the blood vessel will start to squeeze down as well, so vascular spasm will occur. Then platelets will come, and kind of with red blood cells go in that area, and then it activates this thing called fibrin, which is part of forming a clot, and that will come and kind of bind everything together. and then over the next sort of week or two, the red blood cells and the platelets will actually sort of dissolve away and you're left with this fibrin meshwork. And that's what creates scar tissue, sort of as we see it, you know, that thick white stuff. And the liver makes a whole lot of these proteins involved in the clotting cascade. So there are a number of different things that will make it so that you can't form clots as well. So one is that if you have liver disease, you aren't going to make those proteins as well as you should be, and they might not be functional, or you might not have them at all. Um, So liver patients tend to have high, we call it INR, is how we measure how thin your blood is. They tend to have high INR just based off of their disease. And I don't know if you've ever seen, like, a liver patient that cuts themselves, they're going to bleed like stink. Liver patients often have GI bleeds, and part of that's because they develop varices in their stomach and their esophagus. But also, once those things start bleeding, they bleed more than someone else that would have a GI bleed. Trauma. So... So obviously, if you have some sort of trauma and you 're bleeding somewhere, you want to activate the clotting cascade to try to plug up that bleeding. But if someone is has a severe trauma, you can abnormally activate that that cascade and once you know we, we were talking about how the body has this kind of balance, once you 've swayed that balance way to one side, so you 've got this huge trauma, the body is just working super hard to clog up all those bleeding vessels. It, it's not, it, you've sort of tipped it off of its balance, and then it kind of can be dysfunctional. And you, in trauma, if it's a sick trauma patient, you can be more likely to clot and more likely to bleed just because of the, not just because of cutting something, but because of abnormalities of the clotting cascade. DIC? Um, DIC. Sort of. So D, DIC is disseminated intravascular, I think, coagulopathy. And DIC is. Yeah, that you have an abnormality in your clotting cascade, and oftentimes that's triggered after birth. Like let's say someone is um, delivering a baby and they're pushing really hard. You've got the placenta, which is this meshwork of blood, and you push a little bit of amniotic fluid from the baby into the placenta, and then it gets absorbed into the maternal bloodstream. That's kind of the classic story of activating DIC. But DIC can get activated from anything, from um, trauma, from sepsis, from whatever, and then that person becomes oozy. They start bleeding from their gums and bleeding in their urine and vaginal bleeding and tends to be mucosal bleeding. Um, Yeah. So, and, and you can have coagulopathy related to trauma that's not DIC. DIC is technically defined by having a lack of something called fibrinogen, um, but you can also have it with that. Um, So antiplatelet and anticoagulant, so obviously if someone's taking warfarin or aspirin or Plavix or a whole bunch of drugs, that's going to make them less likely to clot. Fibrinolytics, which means TPA generally. There's another drug called TNKase that we don't give that much, but TPA is the clot blasting drug that we give for strokes. So that's going to make it so you can't clot as well. And then if someone has a clotting factor deficiency, what's like the classic clotting factor deficiency of history? Anemia, Anemia means lower blood cells, but... If you were a Russian prince in the 1800s, you might have had this.
1: Hemophilia.
0: Yes. Did you Google that? No. Oh. <laughs> were you an English major or a literature major? No. I don't know. Yeah. I just went to real college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, good job. So <clears throat> so hemophilia is genetic. There's hem- hemophilia A and B and uh in Russia in like the 171800s, they thought we want to maintain our nobility and not breed with the peasants. And so they, there tended to be a lot of interbreeding, and there wasn't a whole lot of genetic diversity. And there's like several strains of nobility that had like every single male had hemophilia. So, anyways, interesting. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> this is the clotting Cascade. Uh, you do not need to know this. My point with showing you this is just that there are, all of these things are proteins that are floating in your bloodstream. So what happens is, you know, here you've got your damaged blood cell, which, reduce, which releases that protein, which then changes that from the inactive molecule to the active molecule, which then changes that from the inactive molecule to the after, right? So you just go boop boop. You just like start activating all of these things, right? And then like trauma, so other... Inflammatory molecules get released like those can go down through a different system and what actually happens at the bottom of this is that prothrombin becomes thrombin and fibrinogen becomes fibrin and we talked about fibrin is what you need to make clots. The reason I'm showing you this is I wanted to show you how some of these drugs work. So coumadin, warfarin, right? People take it and it blocks the function of these proteins, essentially. So it puts a stop in the clotting cascade. Um, most, Most times these days, unless someone was already on Coumadin or Warfarin, we don't start people on those drugs. Because Coumadin requires very frequent monitoring, and also we have a vitamin, vitamin K, that influences... Coumadin getting digested or getting bound up kind of so if someone eats food with a lot of vitamin K Which tend to be vegetables so if they all of a sudden have a salad and they never eat salads It's going to affect the ability of Coumadin to work. So These other new drugs rivaroxaban, apixaban, dabigatran, those ones don't do that You don't have to monitor them and they're not affected by diet as much So we so we generally are prescribing those for people these days. Zach? When
2: you say- are you referring to like ER staff, or are you saying that like um, we're going to see less people taking warfarin in over over time? Mm-hmm. More like elderly folks on it, and we'll see like up and coming blood thinners
0: like, Yes. Yeah. All of the above. So Plavix is think of Plavix and aspirin together. <clears throat> They're both antiplatelet agents, so the 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 platelets don't bind to the clot as well. But what's stronger than antiplatelet agents is uh, anti-coagulants, which these are the ones that affect the clotting cascade. So Xarelto is, I think, apixaban. Um, Rivaroxaban is pradaxa or something. See, don't wish they didn't make it so complicated with brand names and generic names. But so anyway, so like the way that so we call these things NOACS, novel oral anticoagulant. I, anticoagulants, I think. The thing is that they're not so new anymore, right? So now people are c- calling them DOACs as well, which stands for direct oral anticoagulant. Um, I still call them NOACs, whatever. But so the so some of the NOAx affect that one. This one affects that protein. So just I'm trying to show you like some th- these are how some of these drugs work: is that they take out one step in this massive clotting cascade. Heparin. We often start people on heparin in the hospital because the great thing about heparin is that you can turn it off and it'll be gone within minutes from their bloodstream. So if someone all of a sudden starts bleeding, you turn off the heparin and then they won't bleed as much.
2: For A Mm -hmm. fairly complicated process like this, if you're a drug maker, there's like a lot of opportunity maybe because if Mm -hmm. you can stop any one of these things, you can market to a whole different, is that what you're saying? Like, yeah. They, they created a drug that does one piece of this massive chain of events.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Huh? Yeah, just trying to show you kind of how they work. Like, you don't need to memorize the clotting cascade, but it's kind of good to know that like all these drugs that you're going to see people on just sort of take out one little element and it disables that entire cascade. There's a drug that affects this that you give, which I'll show you in a second because I put it down here. Um. <clears throat> TXA, right? You guys carry that. So we give TXA so that people don't bleed as much, and I told you the body's always in a balance, right? So, the, so this whole clotting cascade is promoting clots, but there's all, also a process in the body that's breaking down clots. Because Let's say we start the clotting cascade and we start forming clots everywhere. If we go too far with that We can get strokes and blood clots in the gut and the kidneys and stuff like that So there's always a system going as well. That's breaking down those clots at the same time and TXA Disables that system a little bit so it prevents plasminogen going to plasmin and so it prevents you from breaking down the clots that you're forming Okay so you, so you guys t- give TXA when or why?
4: Severe trauma.
0: Severe trauma. What defines severe trauma?
4: Car well, accident. Loss of yeah. blood. Yeah,
0: like what's in your protocol? If you're,
3: unable, if you're unable to control. If you have signs and Maybe. symptoms of, of like shocks or hypoglymics or
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think they technically need to be hypotensive or or shock, you know, I guess, in the protocol. But also the story has to fit, right? Like it has to be a severe enough mechanism and they have to sort of look like they're bleeding. But signs of shock plus trauma. We, the only thing that you guys are approved to use TXA for is trauma, but we use it in the ER off-label for a whole bunch of things, like GI bleeding, if someone's postpartum and they're just having like massive vaginal bleeding. Epistaxis, <clears throat> someone's got a nosebleed. I'll take the same vial of TXA that you have, pop the top off, and pour it over a little pledgelet, and then stick the pledgelet up into their nose and try to get it to stop. Or I'll nebulize TXA and tell them to breathe through their nose.
2: That's awesome. Yeah.
0: So we, we use it for all sorts of things, um, but the only FDA-approved use of it is trauma, whereas all this stuff we're using, it's not technically FDA-approved, and that's why we sort of say it should only be a doctor doing it, and it's a little bit more risky.
4: So, yeah. so I remember giving it one time on a patient who had slipped their wrist and was now mm-hmm. hypotensive. Mm-hmm. The bleeding on their wrist had stopped, and we were able to stop that bleeding, mm-hmm. you know, compress it, and continue to have it be stopped. Mm-hmm. But yet we still gave it as part of our fluids and everything else we mm-hmm. were giving just because of the, the fact that they had been mm-hmm. bleeding. And I ended up later thinking, I don't know if that was even necessary. Like, mm-hmm. if you have blunt trauma and you don't know where all the bleeding is occurring, it could be continuing. Right. When you're on scene with the patient, it makes more sense to give it then. Mm-hmm. But that if you're giving it, when you've already controlled the bleeding from the mm-hmm. site they're bleeding at, mm-hmm. would you use it then or not? Okay, mm-hmm. Good Yeah,
0: if at that point they're showing signs of shock, mm-hmm. really they need blood, yeah. right? Or or f- like fluid, like up to a liter of fluid to to uh, resuscitate their volume. But yeah, if you if you've totally controlled the bleeding, I wouldn't. So okay,
3: John. Good. Can we we haven't really talked much about TX. So can we dive into it a little bit? Yeah. Um,
2: are there any? I, I don't recall seeing any complications for. But are, are there any bleeds there?
1: Yeah.
0: So one of the best studies that's ever been done was done on TXA. It's called the CRASH-2 trial, and they did 25,000 patients. They did it in a variety of places. So the vast majority of trials that are done are only done in high-income countries, right, like U.S. and the U.K., The CRASH-2 trial said, we want this trial to be applicable to people in Africa and Iran and China and everywhere. So they actually did this in, I don't know, like 16 countries, including low, middle and high income countries. And they showed like a pretty significant benefit in severe trauma patients, but uh, some people have criticized that trial, saying, "Okay, good, good for you, but I live in a high-income country. I want to know if it's really applicable just to me, because there's some thought that you're you're promoting clotting with TXA." So could you make people more likely to get DVTs and PEs? So actually, there's a big trial ongoing right now in New Zealand and Australia where they're trying to say, just amongst first world countries, do people tend to do better or do they develop PEs and DVTs down the line and have more problems with it? So that's the risk of it. There's not really a contraindication, but it's sort of only give it if you need it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or something else other than that?
1: Hmm. No, was just, yeah,
0: yeah, okay. I was just I was thinking
1: about it with, with head bleeds. Oh, yeah, that's. It, yeah. it almost, almost seemed like. It would be
0: just yeah, actually, that would be a great topic, too. So there was a big trial that just came out, I think last year, that said T- could TXA be useful just for people with TBIs? Which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but I think their theory is that if you have a significant enough head. Head trauma, we CT their scan, their head and they don't have a, a bleed. Let's say that it's not a subdural or a subarachnoid or whatever. It's just a TBI, but that there might be lots of teeny tiny little micro bleeds, and theoretically, would TXA help that population? Eh. But they did this trial, and they actually did find a benefit. It was, is I'm not remembering all the statistics, but I remember it wasn't, it wasn't like a slam dunk, like the CRASH-2 trial was a slam dunk. That trial came out and it changed practice everywhere in the world within a year. This TBI trial didn't like change everyone's practice, but it's suggestive. It's like, huh, interesting, we need to do more research on this. So that might be something that's coming within the next five years of starting to, even for pre-hospital care, using TXA for TBI patients. Let's say you're not exsanguinating, you're not hypotensive, but you have a significant amount of TBI. So So, back to this one. So this is how hemophilia works. So hemophilia B means that you have a lack of that protein, protein 9, and thus they can't do the clotting cascade as well. Hemophilia A is that you don't have protein 8 in the clotting cascade. There's also a disease called von Willebrand's disease, and they don't have von Willebrand factor. And these are just all proteins that exist in the blood. So if someone with hemophilia A, B, or von Willebrand's disease come into the ER, and they've had it, essentially that group of people is instructed, if anything ever happens, you need to come into the ER. We will give them the factor that they're la- they're lacking. So, like, let's say you go and give a blood transfusion. They spin your blood down so it's just plasma. You can even keep spinning it down and get just factor eight or just factor nine, and then we will give them factor eight. Um, yeah. So. The, these patients will often have this stuff. It's expensive. It's like a couple thousand dollars a dose. But they'll keep it at home because they want to have it with them just in case something happens. But they're instructed to come to the ER to actually get it infused into them. Because we don't want people like starting IVs on themselves at home. So.
2: And if they have it immediately available, you all don't have to go looking for it or such and such produce it. Correct.
0: And then they can just. Right. Though it is nice if we've got our supply that we can get really fast. Um, it's nice if we use ours so that they can keep theirs because if they use it, then it takes a little bit of time for them to, it takes like a week for them to get another dose of it. Um, but let's say that they're out in Forks, Washington and something happens and they go to the Forks ER. Forks ER probably doesn't have factors. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, So there's a few things that can make you more likely to form clots, like more likely to have PEs and DVTs. So I put vitamin K up there because it's really only applicable to people that are on Coumadin or Warfarin, that if they eat a lot of Things with vitamin K, they're more likely to form clots and the warfarin isn't going to work as well. Relative or complete mobility. So, have you guys heard of risk factors for DVTs and PEs?
3: Sitting for a long time, like on an airplane.
0: Yeah, so like really long airplane traits. Surgery. Yeah, again. Yes. Yeah, good. Anything else? Trauma can do it too, just, you know, we were talking about trauma can, it messes up your clotting cascade, so you can either be more likely to bleed in trauma or more likely to clot. Um, Cancer uh, makes you hypercoagulable, and then there's a disease called polycythemia, so it's a genetic condition where they make too many red blood cells, and so normally our hematocrit is like 35 to 45. We get... um, blood tests on these people and it's like 55 or 60. I actually saw a guy with appendicitis that had polycythemia on Sunday and um, he said, so the way that you treat this so that they don't form random blood clots is that they do bloodletting, right? Which we haven't done since like the 1900s. So he said he goes about every, somewhere between two to six weeks and they they cut, they draw a bunch of blood, they throw it away, you know, and then... Wait,
4: they actually cut, or are they
0: just... Oh, you, oh, IV. You're sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Do they have medical grade leeches? or like?
0: You know, that's a good question. We still have them. We have them at St. Joe's Pharmacy. Medical grade... I'm serious.
2: That's so awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've never seen it used. There's and... medical
2: grade leeches in the hospital just hanging out
0: waiting for the time. Yeah. Next time we
2: do a ER day
4: See
0: them? They would be down in the pharmacy. Um, I should ask my friend about that and say. Would
1: you please do, do that at some point? A picture for
0: yeah, I'll ask. I have a couple friends who are pharmacists, so I'll say, hey, could you take you a picture? To go to the Probably not. Okay. Um, yeah. I'll try. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. <laughs> well, there are. Just, okay, maybe not Yeah, not at our oh pharmacy. I swear, I swear. That's, <laughs> gross. <laughs> That's gross. That's <Yeah>. gross. Okay. <clears throat> um I want to pull these things up real quick. So like
3: birds, your talk on Apple Right. You learned about it actually in clouds for burns,
0: right? It was uh like pharmacy
3: grade baggage
2: on
1: burn
0: victims. I don't know. Like my
1: yeah. um, <laughs> my yeah. why because we the Robert start Robert using, uh, CBD oil. <laughs> the back of the I mean within <laughs> yeah. so the next central of
2: money yeah so <laughs>
0: so oftentimes when i i mean we'll see what ralph does but like when i'm presenting in in uh CE, I'll say like, oh, and their white blood cell count was this, and they had this troponin and a D-dimer. And sometimes I forget that you don't maybe know what some of those lab tests are that we get. So a D-dimer, is a, so someone comes in and we're worried that they have a clot, a DVT or a PE, right? Either if they're, if they're sick enough... We just treat them, we just presume you have it and we start a heparin drip and anticoagulate them. But for the vast majority of people, we try to sort of work it up and diagnose it. And we do it through a few different ways. So one is we say, do you have these risk factors? Do we think that you're, your high enough likelihood to have a PE or a DVT. And then if we think that they are, we might get this blood test called a D-dimer, which is if someone, so we said we're we're always forming clots and we're always breaking down clots. So if someone has a cut, they're going to be forming more clots and thus they're going to be breaking down more clots at the same time. So a D-dimer is a breakdown product of breaking down clots. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) so. (laughs) So that's going to be higher if someone is actively bleeding. Doesn't make sense, but it does, kind of. So, um, And then if someone has a high D-dimer, that tells us that they might have a PE or a DVT. And then that usually leads us to either do a chest CT scan to look for a PE, or to do like a duplex scan of their leg where you do an ultrasound and you look for the clot. So some of the things that we use to figure out is this person really likely to have a PE or a DVT? Are these? We have a ton of scoring things, which you can get an absolute number for it. But I think this should also contribute to your gestalt in the field. Let's say you go see someone with shortness of breath. How likely is it that this person is having a PE versus ACS? You know, or something like that. So, so there's the Wells score. Was it gestalt again. I just. Gest- Sorry, your, your gist, right? You, you as a paramedic are going to start feelings. developing a, yeah, a gut feeling, a gist of sick versus not sick, right? Um, I think they just look like a PE patient, you know, I, or they, I don't think that this is their asthma. You know, Joe does this all the time, right? You just develop your kind of, and, and this is in the protocols, like the paramedic or firefighters, like suspicion for something going on. So this sort of stuff should contribute to your suspicions. So if someone, someone is more likely in the Wells score to have a PE or a DVT if they have active cancer, if they've been bedridden greater than three days or had a major surgery within 12 weeks, if they have calf swelling, because most PEs come from lower leg DVTs. The exception to that would be, let's say someone just had like a pick line placed, or they had like a major trauma to their arm, then they can develop DVTs there. Otherwise, it's kind of weird to get DVTs in your arms just because we use our arms. Um, so collateral superficial veins. If you look at someone and they look really veiny on their legs, theoretically, that's a risk factor. If one leg is swollen, not both legs, but you know, asymmetric swelling of a leg, if there's tenderness along the veins of their legs, if they have pitting edema, on that one leg. you guys know what that means, pitting edema? Yep, so it's like you push the edema and your thumb imprint stays in their leg. And then if they've been immobilized, like they were in a cast, if they've previously had a DVT, and then alternative diagnosis to DVT, as likely or more likely. So this is getting into the sort of gestalt of like, you think cellulitis is more likely than DVT, something like that. So that's one scoring tool, and then oops. Perk.
4: What's your index of suspicion for DVT, I mean it probably depends on the patient, but I, I was thinking of a patient we had a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. it was a younger lady, she was probably in her late 20s, and she had been diagnosed with the DVT and then was put on a regimen of medications, mm-hmm. and blood thinners and stuff, and then she called us because she had some increased soreness, I think, in mm-hmm. that leg. Mm-hmm. So we called med control, and they asked for a number that and I didn't know what it meant, but then the mm-hmm. patient did, and they said, well, you know, she's already on the medication treatment that mm-hmm. she would be having, so mm-hmm. just follow up with her doctor.
2: Mm-hmm. But,
4: uh, like, what's your index of suspicion usually for a DVT, you know, in terms of what's the propensity for it to become PE and all that kind of stuff?
0: There are statistics on this that I don't have memorized. Um, So, people can have DVTs in their calf veins. So, there's like the perineal vein and the deep tibial vein, and whatever. And then those can extend up into the popliteal vein, and then those can extend all the way up into the femoral vein. If someone has a calf vein, a calf DVT, the the percent of cases that become PEs is fairly low. So those are actually a bit controversial about whether you should anticoagulate them or not. Once they have a popliteal or a femoral DVT, that's when that probability goes way up. What that number is, oh, I'm not sure. It's probably still less than 10%, but I don't remember the exact number. And then the more proximal it is, the more likely that you're going to get a PE. Once they get up to having like a femoral Uh, DVT, they tend to put this thing in called an IVC, which is a a, it's a little an intra um, Sorry, what's it called? An IVC something or other. Um, So it goes into your inferior vena cava and it's a little mesh basket that they, they go in like they're going to do a cath. They go in through your femoral artery, go up, and then just deploy, or thermal veins, sorry, and just deploy this thing in your IVC so that if a clot breaks off, it gets caught in the mesh and it doesn't go to your lungs. So. What would you expect the uh, distal limb
1: to present
0: like with something like that? With a DVT or a femoral? Yeah. Um, swollen. They should just just unilateral swelling and pain, and then... Like We have a couple of exam things that we'll do, so if you, <clears throat> if you palpate, we call it the popliteal cord, so where the popliteal vein is, sometimes you can feel a DVT. It'll be hard. That's a, You don't want to push too hard because you could make it break off and cause a PE. And then if you take their calf and you squeeze it, in general, that's going to hurt. We just call it calf tenderness, And then the other thing is, if you take their foot and you passively flex it up and they say, ooh, that really hurts, that's called a positive Homan's sign. Homan's, H-O-M-A-N-S. Um, That said, if they have a gastrocnemius strain, you do that, that's also going to hurt, right? So it's not super sensitive, but it's just one extra exam finding that we say how likely. If you develop a clot in the femoral vein that's completely occlusive and they don't have enough collateral veins. So if you develop a clot, the body's going to start trying to develop collateral veins right away, but that takes a little bit of time. But let's say this clot comes fairly suddenly and the body hasn't had time to develop collateral veins. It is possible to completely block off the blood flow into the vein into the leg, excuse me, because it obstructs the venous outflow. In which case, their exam will look like they had an arterial clot, an arterial embolus. So there's two two different diagnoses. So these are very rare things. It's sort of like a a once-in-a-career thing. And it's called Flammatia cerulea dolens and Flammatia cerulea albens. And they're Latin terms that essentially say, is the leg blue, dolens, or albens is white. So Literally the difference, but you'll look at their leg and it'll look like an ischemic leg like from whatever point down They'll have loss of sensation. They'll probably have swelling the leg will have pallor And if you touch it the cap refill will be decreased and their pulses might the pulses should still be there But they might not be as like strong and bounding Cool to the touch Cool to the touch.
1: Mm-hmm. And for these patients you kind of mentioned you're, you're palpating it, you're feeling it, you don't want to break it loose for mm-hmm. us on the train Side, we Mm -hmm. want to be very careful positionally. Is there any recommendations that way or no?
0: No. And if you think about it, this person's probably been walking and moving and doing all the things, so you don't need to immobilize them. I just wouldn't go there and, you know, just like try to. Right. right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but you can just treat them normal. Okay. Yeah. My my former daughter in law, that basically was
1: pregnant. And this pregnancy. Mm Mm-hmm. It
0: wasn't just yeah yeah pregnancy is a risk factor sort of like anticoagulants or, or not anticoagulants, um ocps uh birth control because you're increasing the amount of estrogen that you have and estrogen makes you more likely to clot so around around pregnancy and especially like the six weeks after postpartum you're at higher risk of developing clots i think
3: on acls it was talk maybe it was acls i don't know where i was also, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. male testosterone replacement stuff is becoming more common. Mm-hmm. And so like that's a hormone. So males mm-hmm. are, uh, are like yeah. I don't know,
4: there's something. Yeah.
0: You'd be
4: more likely to get a PE yeah. from that as well? Yeah, so like... Uh-uh. No?
0: So testosterone actually doesn't put you at higher risk of PE, but mm. e- exogenous injections of testosterone do put you at risk for other things. Testicular atrophy... Um, Loss of libido, uh, other things. Kidney failure, I think. Oh, there's a whole bunch of things. I'll try, but. To,
3: I'll try to find where I saw that. because yeah. like, I thought they made it seem like, like uh, yeah. hormones that were yeah. not natural in your body, like that just made you more at risk of like, DBTs and PEs. But I don't. I don't yes. Know
0: Yes for estrogen, I have not heard that testosterone puts you at any higher risk. No. No. Okay, so this is the Perk score. I use this every day that I work in the ER. So if someone comes in <clears throat> with chest pain, I have to determine are they high enough risk for PE that I'm going to work them up for that and that means it's a pretty big deal because it means I'm going to give them a CT scan of their chest with contrast which can cause kidney injury can give them radiation exposure and is super expensive. So if I'm going to do that test I need to have a high enough level of suspicion. So I do this risk tool and if they are high enough risk I get a D-dimer and then if that's positive I get a CT scan. So the risk factors are that if someone is over age 50, if they have a heart rate over 100, if they're hypoxic, which we define for this as a sat under 95, and then if they have signs of DVT. So they've got unilateral leg swelling, if they're so another sign of PE if they're coughing up blood, hemoptysis, if they've had recent surgery or trauma, if they've had a prior PE or DVT, and if they're on hormones. So if anyone has those risk factors, and these are, we kind of know this stuff, and this is also what it, what's in your protocols. Like if someone has, if they're tachycardic and hypoxic, and if they have pleuritic chest pain, like those are all things that might make them more likely to have a PE. John? Do
3: you all use n as a measurement or is that
0: a- Not really. The only thing that I use n for is if I'm doing a procedural sedation and you want to you catch that they stop breathing before the oxygen level goes down. But other than that, I don't ever really use it. But nope. well, you
1: have access to labs. So right. To use it. Yeah, okay, yeah. Better, better but, uh, but, but I don't... Uses
0: it. Uh, no. <laughs> nope. Because... Um, <clears throat> I know. Yeah, that, so sad. I, I think it's a
1: common
0: thought. Really? Yeah. So if you have a blood clot that comes up and goes to your lungs, I mean, you've got these big lungs. Wish I had a dummy. I mean, or like a (laughs) skeleton. Or like. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So these are your lungs. And you've got big blood vessels that go in. And then they start branching off. Whatever, bad artist. Okay, so these are blood vessels. They're not bronchi, right? So a blood clot, a massive blood clot, breaks up and comes off. And let's say it gets stuck right there. We call that a saddle embolism. You've probably heard that. It's so big that it's it's saddling the right and the left pulmonary artery. And... Um, that is going to block so much blood flow that that person is at high risk of hemodynamic compromise, right? Of looking, of uh, hypotensive, looking really, really sick. If someone comes in and we think that they have a saddle embolism, this is kind of one of the rare things that we will give TPA for a non stroke. We'll give them TPA to break that up. Um, so you can have a saddle, you can also have it gets stuck maybe right there, so it's just on one side or the other. That person might look pretty sick with that too. That's blocking a ton of blood flow. And if you take out one entire lung from being able to get oxygen into the bloodstream, they're gonna be hypoxic. But these are rare. Most of the time people get blood clots, like let's say these go into smaller veins, you know, most of the time you're gonna get a blood clot that goes down and gets stuck like there, okay? So this blood vessel supplies this area of lung, okay? So that area of lung starts to die. Their chest They might have left-sided chest pain with that, but you still have that much lung on the left and that much lung on the right. Like you have so much other lung left that you're not going to be hypoxic and you're not going to have any inability to get rid of your CO2. You still have plenty of lung left to excrete that CO2. Only if you had one of these really proximal ones would I expect the CO2 to be different. So, Joe. So
1: while you can't exclude that there might be a PE with that, -hmm. if you have someone who passed out and is tachycardic and hypoxic Mm and also has a low end title, Mm -hmm. it seems like that would lead you
0: Maybe, that said, there's a lot of things that make people pass out and hypoxic and tachycardic. I mean, they could be septic, they could be um, having a massive GI bleed such that they were anemic and then they passed out, like anything that can cause shock could also cause someone to pass out, be tachycardic and be hypoxic. So one question is how reliable is the end title, which part of it has to do with machinery and like how good is your waveform and all of that. But the other part of it is if someone is in shock, they're going to start vasoconstricting their extremities and try to get that blood just to their core and kind of recirculate there. And so sometimes, or like let's say uh, cardiac arrest resuscitation, we look at end titles. When when someone first gets ROSC, their end title is going to be A little bit false, usually. It usually takes a few minutes for things to, you to sort of get good circulation back up and to get an accurate end tidal measurement. Um, But let's say you actually think you have an accurate end tidal measurement. Um, If it's low, that can be a sign of like sepsis or severe metabolic acidosis. Um, It just sort of tells you that that person is really sick, often in general.
4: common symptom of that kind of pleuritic chest pain, like a sharp or inspiratory you know, changes on movement or inspiration, expiration, that kind of thing. Is mm-hmm. that what you'd be looking for?
0: Yeah, so when someone takes a deep breath and it hurts, mm-hmm. that's, the plur- that's what the word pleuritic means. Right. And that's sort of your classic uh, chest pain associated with PE, although it's not always. And then there's lots of other things that cause pleuritic chest pain, right? If you have a rib fracture, you're going to have pleuritic chest pain. So. Paul? How,
3: how in the field do we have a, a reliable way then to, I guess there's no reliable way until you get work or
0: done? Yeah, but even us, like a lot of what we do isn't you know, reliable. It's based off of these risk factors and hearing the story and getting your gestalt for what you think is going on. Um, and then we, it helps us decide if we're actually going to do tests that make diagnoses. Okay, so just a couple of exam findings that help you determine if someone could have a coagulopathy of some sort. So are they having blood in their urine, vaginal bleeding? We talked about like the oozing, like gum, mucosal bleeding, GI bleeding, nose bleeds, Lymphadenopathies—that's unrelated to coagulopathy—but if someone has big lymph nodes, that can be a sign of cancer. Um, and then pruritus. So if someone has a bunch of hemolysis, their red blood cells are uh, are breaking down. You're releasing bilirubin and like some blood products into the bloodstream that just tend to make people itchy. Pr- pruritus just means itchiness. Um,
2: am itchy
0: again because so, so let's say you have liver failure okay. and if you have hemolysis so if you're breaking down red blood cells you tend to release bilirubin into your bloodstream and then if you have liver failure you're also having a backup of bilirubin into the bloodstream and bilirubin makes you itchy I recently went on a call where
2: the person described themselves as like the itchiest they've ever been in their life and they intolerable yeah. like, didn't, yeah, yeah. so I wasn't yeah. wondering necessarily Yeah. Oh, did he? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. So like this, right? So like your skin looks yellow. That's from the bilirubin. That's called jaundice. And then this is called scleral icterus, but it means your, your sclera, the white part of your eye gets bright yellow and then polycythemia. So we talked about that very briefly, just that you have this really high level of red blood cells and hematocrit, they tend to get this ru- ruddy. we call it a rooty appearance to their skin, this kind of like red, hot look. It's not actually hot to the touch, but that's, the person on the right has polycythemia, the person on the left has a normal hand. So some skin findings. So these are purpura, and that kind of tells you that you have medium-sized veins that are kind of bursting and and you're causing little microbleeds. These are called petechiae and that's when you have the smallest size like capillaries that are bursting and causing little bleeds. So if you see either of these things, it could mean that someone's having a, a coagulopathy, like they're more likely to bleed, but also it could mean platelet issues. People tend to get petechiae and purpura. So pallor, that just means someone's really pale. And especially if you pull down their their eyes and you look at the conjunctiva, if that looks really white, that tends to be a sign of anemia, that they have low red blood cells. And then obviously just normal bruising, right? I don't know if any of you have had family members that have been on anticoagulants or even just aspirin. Like my mom had like a little heart thing and was on aspirin for a while. And just if she like bumped herself would just get like big bruises.
4: How does the pectin relate to uh, um, what am I thinking of sepsis. in uh, sepsis and also in in peeds with uh,
2: streptococcal
4: mm-hmm. issues? meningitis? And yeah, like meningitis
0: and that, that kind. of How does that happen? Um, I think it happens just through when someone gets really sick for whatever reason they can have these abnormalities of their clotting cascade. And you can have too much activation of platelets or too much activation of the whole clotting cascade and and form clots. And then if you form a clot, you tend to burst that blood vessel and bleed around it sometimes. But these are all like, you're, you're just blocking or bleeding in the surface of the skin. So it creates this little appearance. I think it's just, I don't think it's specific to streptococcus or to specific, bacterial infections. I think it's just that that person is so sick that they've activated this abnormal coagulopathy. Yeah. This, people can get these conditions called ITP and TTP, and it's idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura and, God, what's the T? Something thrombocytopenic purpura and they're they're rare diseases. They're they're autoimmune in general So it's that the body all of a sudden for whatever reason sees their own platelets as foreign and attacks them And that would be like the classic of why you would get petechiae and purpura But it's rare. So like let's some let's say someone calls 911 and they could have just driven themselves to the ER But whatever they decided to call 911 and they said I've all of a sudden just got this, and yeah, I've been feeling kind of sick for a couple days, but now I have this huge rash. Like, Generally, they're not going to like completely decompensate on you, but they do need to come to the ER and get checked out. So. Okay, I think we're almost done. Anemia, we've already talked about this a little bit, so hematocrit less than 37 in women and 40 in men. Um, People can have hemolytic anemia too, so there's a couple of, of genetic diseases like spherocytosis and sickle cell anemia where you burst your red blood cells, so you hemolyze your red blood cells. Also, people can hemolyze their red blood cells from... We acquired things, so we call that like shearing. So if someone gets a heart valve replacement, like a mitral valve or an aortic valve replacement, having a piece of metal in your bloodstream is not totally normal. And as the red blood cells kind of whoosh past that metal, they get sheared and can burst. Um, Yeah. And then there's other reasons why people have anemia. So there's iron deficiency anemia, right, which is really common. Like. It's much more common in women, but any of us could have had it. Um, there's pernicious anemia, which is a genetic condition where you don't absorb B12 from your gut as well as you should, and you need B12 to help make red blood cells, so you don't make enough of them. And then there's anemia of chronic disease. So this kind of has to do with the kidneys and erythropoietin, but people who tend to be sick with chronic diseases tend to be anemic, and it's sort of related to their their kidneys not responding adequately to signaling and making enough EPO to stimulate red blood cell production. It's talking about sickle cell, pretty uncommon that we see it here in Bellingham because we don't have a lot of black people and it tends to be much more common in Africans, African Americans, or African whoever's. Um, but what it is is that genetically you have a abnormal red blood cell that people can have different v- varieties of this disease so you can you have two everyone has two genes right for for everything right so someone can have full sickle cell disease where they have both of those genes with the sickle cell gene or they can have one normal one and one sickle gene and then that's called sickle cell trait and they have a less severe disease but when their oxygen levels are low or there's some sort of stress on their body, the red blood cells t- tend to sickle more. They become kind of curved and abnorm- they function abnormally. And they, they can, first of all, they don't transport oxygen as well, but they can also clot and get kind of plugged up in things. So they tend to, over time, get more and more clots in their kidneys and get kidney disease. Um, They've chronic anemia. They can also clot in the penis and actually so it's pretty common to see priapism like someone come in with you know they're with an erection that won't go down um, and that's from sickle cell. They get this thing called acute chest syndrome which essentially is a PE. It's that they get these sickle cells that clot into the pulmonary veins and then or pulmonary arteries, and then uh, you have severe chest pain. And they can get, over their lifetime, they have big sections of their lungs die off because they keep having PE after PE after PE. They can get strokes, and they, I just put infarct, like you can get infarcts almost anywhere. So sickle cell patients um, tend to have kind of a bad rap because let's say you guys were firefighters in, New Orleans or Detroit or wherever has like a much higher prevalence of black people. These people call 911 all the time because they have pain and it's not something that anyone can look at and say, oh, it's so and so calling with chest pain again or hip pain or whatever. Well, they keep getting little micro clots and also they keep having to get pain meds so many times in their life that it's very frequent that these people develop a dependence on opiates. So it's sort of hard because they actually have real pain. But then, you know, so but sickle cell has a very high mortality. People tend to die in their 40s um, and they have a painful life. So um, and then they're functionally immunosuppressed and they're kind of vulnerable to some of those bacteria because their bone marrow isn't making the cells as as well as they should be. And they tend to... Uh, get lots of clots in their spleen and functionally they are asplenic. Their spleen just kind of stops working usually by their 20s. And then that can, if you don't have a spleen, you're not filtering out bad stuff from your blood either, like certain bacteria. And so then they're at a little higher risk of certain bacterial infections.
1: Is there there not a,
0: It's really not, it's kind of all supportive. Um, the main things are making sure that they don't get dehydrated, because you're more likely to be stressed and for your blood to sickle if you're dehydrated, so. Um, and then, yeah, if there's not a genetic treatment, making sure that their oxygen level's high, trying to prevent sickness in general. Yeah, but there's not, as far as I know, I don't think there's really like a drug treatment. Yeah, Zach?
2: Do they end up with a high incidence of blood transfusions, like if they are too?
0: No, no, because if if you transfuse them, um, that's a very short-lived thing, you know, whereas this is, like, it might help them for a couple of days, but you can't give them a transfusion, like, every day, you know, so, so they don't. Ah, here's a picture, so this is a fairly normal-looking red blood cell, and then that's a sickled cell. Okay. Uh, yep. So if you guys were to see one of these patients, you just want to put them on high oxygen and then, you know, give them IV fluids, and then they may require really high doses of narcotics. Leukemias. So there's a whole bunch of different leukemias. So ALL, AML, CLL, CML, and then one called hairy cell leukemia. So this is that your body is making way too many of that type of white blood cell Abnormally, and it's a cancer. It's a bone marrow cancer. They tend to present with bleeding um, and then with infection uh, because if the bone marrow is so consumed with making white blood cells, it just doesn't have quite enough capacity to make red blood cells and platelets like it normally should. So they end up having. that's funny. I, this, is, this is wrong. Neutropenia means low white blood cell count. They don't have low white blood cell count. They have really, really high white blood cell count. Uh, but they will have low red blood cell count and sometimes a low platelet count. The way that we treat these patients is chemotherapy, radiation to their bone marrow, and then sometimes a bone marrow transplant. And then if you ever, saw, if you ever see like an, a leukemic patient or like an immunosuppressed cancer patient, just make sure you're wearing your PPE, not for you, for them. Right, you, the, you want to prevent them from getting any sort of sickness and then IV fluids and making sure that they're well hydrated so that this massive amount of white blood cells in their blood doesn't clot and create problems. Okay, Lymphoma, so there's Hodgkin's lymphoma. Tends to be young people that get this, like 20-year-olds. You give them chemotherapy and they tend to do really well, like go into full remission and never have problems again. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma tends to not do as well. Um, and just like any sort of cancer, you can get any of these symptoms, but, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma tends to present with fever, night sweats, anorexia, just meaning you don't have an appetite, weight loss, fatigue, pruritus, itchiness, um, <clears throat> and then painless lymphadenopathy. So you feel their lymph nodes, you know, in armpits, groin, behind their ears, under their jaw, down their neck, and you can feel like big lymph nodes, but it won't be tender when you push on it.
1: Oops.
0: Yeah, like I don't know if you guys have ever had a cold and you and you have like a mask. You're just like neck and your jaw hurts and you feel and you've got just like a big lump, a big lymph node. They hurt. That really? Yeah, that hurts. Um, some platelets, oh, platelets shorter <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> We've kind of already talked about this. You can, you can have really high platelet counts. That tends to be a response to stress. You can have low platelet counts. That might be because the bone marrow isn't working very well, or you're breaking down your platelets fast, or they're getting caught in the spleen. And then we've already talked a little bit about ITP and what that looks like. We've talked a little bit about clotting disorders. I don't think we need to, yeah, I mean, so any, anyone with hemophilia, the big risk, you know, you can bleed anywhere, but they'll bleed into their joints. So let's say they like fall and, you know, they'll have like, we call it a heme arthrosis into the elbow or the knee or whatever. The biggest risk, though, is if they have a brain bleed, because that's quite serious. Von Willebrand's disease, kind of already talked about this. We've talked about DIC. Multiple myeloma you don't need to know a lot about it just know that it exists it's a plasma cell disorder so it's a B cell uh, hyperproduction of B cells it's just another blood cancer uh, tends to be of older people and we treat it just like other cancers chemo radiation transfusion reactions. So anyone who gets a transfusion is at risk of an allergic response to that transfusion. They're also at risk of these other things. So sometimes people can get pulmonary edema in relation to uh, transfusions. We call that trolley. And then sometimes you're just giving so much volume that you end up causing volume overload and pulmonary edema related to that. And we call that taco. There's always a small risk of giving them the wrong blood type, although our blood labs are really, really good about doing that these days. And then there's always a tiny risk of HIV and hepatitis and stuff like that. So those are just all the reasons why we'd really want to be judicious about giving someone a blood transfusion. It's possible that you guys could see someone with this. Like, there's a number of people that have to get regular transfusions, and let's say they go to the transfusion center to get it as an outpatient, and something goes wrong, and then they call you to bring them to the ER. So if you see this, just make sure that they've stopped. They're going to do this already, but stop the transfusion immediately. Um, But you want to transport that blood with you, with the patient, because they're going to check it when they get to the hospital. And then you just treat them symptomatically. So if they look like they're having anaphylaxis, you give them Benadryl and Epi and IV fluids. And otherwise, you know, it's just all, if they need to be intubated, it's all symptomatic treatment. Okay, that was it. Questions about hematology? Questions about other things? So Zach.
2: Um, one of the things that I was hearing about the other day was proning mm-hmm. for people who are having reactions, the COVID reactions, and breathing problems and mm-hmm. such, and the weight of their chest is actually making it difficult. Mm-hmm. Like, have you guys been doing that in the hospital? Do you think that'll ever go to the field?
0: Yeah, so um, there's sort of. So.
2: I'd let them be face down. As
0: Yeah. So an interesting thing about COVID is like when we publish, when we want to do a trial, it takes years, right? Like you take your group of people, you do something, and then you write the article. It has to get peer reviewed. Like from the time that you start a study, it's generally two to three years until it actually gets published. We can't do that right now, right? We do not have enough time to publish studies on coronavirus. Like people need to get information. So a lot of the way that people have been getting information about coronavirus has been blogs and podcasts and stuff like that so taking experts and essentially doing expert expert opinion so some of like what we know about coronavirus isn't the highest level of research. It's just people who we think are smart, who are talking to each other and sharing knowledge. So there's been a number of like blogs and podcasts where they've sort of said coronavirus is separating, is presenting with these two different phenotypes. So there's like the happy happy hypoxemic patient, and then there's the really sick patient. So there's a group of patients who are positive, tend to be younger and healthier, but they're sitting there in the ER texting on their cell phones and their saturation is 60, but they look just fine and they're texting on their cell phone, right? And, and initially, you know, we were so worried about um, putting people on CPAP and BiPAP and stuff, and we said, you know, if you put them on 100% non-rebreather and they're not bringing up their stats with that, intubate early. So then we, they were like, well, why are we intubating all these people that are like texting on their cell phone and then, you know, all of a sudden you're intubating them, and we didn't have enough ventilators for that sort of thing. So now we've kind of gone to if someone's really sick and they need to be intubated for all the reasons that we would normally intubate a person, intubate them. But for those patients that are there, just keep trying to get their oxygen up, but don't, I mean, do CPAP, do 100% non-rebreather. We've thought about a couple of other things we can try, but like they might be just fine with a lower sat for a while. So now to your question about proning. So yes, proning has absolutely been a topic that they think is helpful in coronavirus. So let's say you have that happy hypoxemic patient. They're already gonna be doing it. So someone's gonna say, you know, I just feel so much more comfortable lying on my left side and texting, right? And it's probably because the coronavirus is affecting, they have a little bit more fluid and gunk and mucus, maybe affecting their left side than their right side, and if they put their left side down so that they're aerating the right side more, they naturally realize that they feel better when they do that. So this is, this is a guy named Scott Weingart who does a lot of um, emergency medicine blogs. Uh, his, his is called MCrit. And he said, he works in New York, New York, and he said, just have people do it themselves. Like put them in a position of comfort, but then also maybe come in every once in a while and say, hey, time to rotate, you know, just like turn to your right side. Okay, maybe lay on your belly and have like adult tummy time for a little bit. Um, and so that, so they're actually encouraging people and finding that they get a little bit better oxygenation with that. That said, this is not like a randomized controlled trial. This is people's anecdotal reports. But proning. So we, we absolutely do proning for really sick ICU patients that we have a difficult time oxygenating. And they're doing that for coronavirus. The thing is, if someone's intubated, it's quite hard to do. You know, to to not dislodge the tube and to like rotate this person's body. So it's, and it's kind of dangerous this that you can pull out IVs and tubes and blah, blah, blah. Um, like there has a been, table yeah, right. They have yeah. proning tables where actually, yeah. let's say you put the person on this, you you lower this thing on them that has two padded like massage table things that go kind of down here and then you like rotate it, but... I don't know. anyways uh, they thought about it for EMS a little bit but the thought is safety like proning is already not that safe because you can't monitor their airway and moving them potentially dislodges you know ET tubes and IVs and also you're in a bumpy moving ambulance you don't have that patient for that long and um, and it's just kind of hard to put them in that position to start with so that I would say yeah so maybe not pre-hospitally but it's something we haven't really been doing it in the ER, but they are doing it in the ICU. So
2: it's upstairs kind of. Thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and they tend to like put them prone for 24 hours and then flip them back and put them supine for 16 hours and then put them prone for 24 hours and so, yeah. so have
1: a bed light for getting a nice even pan <laughs> <laughs> Exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. Well, super excited that medic class is back up, and yeah, happy to help you guys catch up or whatever. I'm lecturing you guys next week, and oh, yeah, hmm?
2: what
0: apparently neuro. I was supposed to do that no, no, today, but no, that, I was wrong. oh, okay. Hematology, oh, okay. And neuro cool. Is on, um, cool. Yeah. So <laughs> that so they weren't wrong by not reading neuro today, but Correct. they should have read all of their hematology for today.
1: <laughs> yeah. <I think laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. Thanks Lunch. Yeah. Yeah. No worries.